Recently, John Piper's successor at Bethlehem Baptist Church stepped down, citing numerous issues, including a neo-fundamentalism that had crept into the church. But what is neo-fundamentalism, and why is the evangelical movement, once united by firm theological convictions, now splitting apart? Welcome to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's. If you've been following my reporting, you know that three pastors, including Jason Meyer, the successor to John Piper, recently resigned from Bethlehem Baptist Church, and a main issue cited by the pastors was spiritual abuse. But also prominent in Pastor Meyer's resignation letter was a complaint that the church had become neo-fundamentalist. And today, I'm going to present new evidence revealing more about this neo-fundamentalism at Bethlehem and the deep divisions over racial and cultural issues that led to Pastor Meyer's resignation. But beyond that, I'm going to explore how what's happening at Bethlehem is just a microcosm of a much larger fracturing across evangelicalism. There are now not just neo-fundamentalists, but neo-evangelicals, post-evangelicals, and even de-churched evangelicals. If you've been scratching your head wondering how Christians subscribing to the same movement could believe and behave so differently, I think you're really going to appreciate this podcast. Joining me are Michael Graham and Skylar Flowers, two pastors who have authored a groundbreaking article entitled The Six-Way Fracturing of Evangelicalism. Their insights on this topic are profound, and I'm so looking forward to our conversation. But first, I want to thank the sponsors of this podcast, Judson University and Marquardt of Barrington. Judson is a top-ranked Christian university providing a caring community and an excellent college experience. Plus, the school offers more than 60 majors, great leadership opportunities, and strong financial aid. Judson University is shaping lives that shape the world. For more information, just go to judsonu.edu. Also, if you're looking for a quality new or used car, I highly recommend my friends at Marquardt of Barrington. Marquardt is a Buick GMC dealership where you can expect honesty, integrity, and transparency. That's because the owners there, Dan and Kurt Marquardt, are men of character. To check them out, just go to buyacar123.com. Well, again, joining me today are Skylar Flowers and Michael Graham, authors of a groundbreaking article entitled The Six-Way Fracturing of Evangelicalism. And like I said, I think this article is crucial to understanding the landscape of evangelicalism today, but I also believe it's crucial to understanding what's happening at Bethlehem Baptist Church. First, let me introduce Skylar Flowers. Skylar is an assistant pastor at Grace Bible Church in Oxford, Mississippi. He holds an MDiv from Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. He also serves on the steering committee for Rooted Youth Ministry and contributes to a podcast called As in Heaven. So, Skylar, welcome. It's such a pleasure to have you join me. Thanks, Julie. Also joining us is Michael Graham, executive pastor at Orlando Grace Church in Orlando, Florida. He also holds an MDiv from Reformed Theological Seminary, and he's the executive producer and writer of the As in Heaven podcast. So, Michael, great to have you join us. Thanks so much. Thank you, Julie. I'd really just love to get a sense of who you men are and why the state of evangelicalism is so important to you. Obviously, you're both pastors. So that, and being an evangelical pastor, obviously that is something that's important. But I'm guessing that you have some background with this. I mean, did you grow up in the church? Did you grow up evangelical? Or was it something that you came to later? 
Michael, why don't you go first? Yeah, so I grew up in a church. It was church basically from birth. Probably the best way to describe the churches that I grew up in were primarily SBC, dispensational, mm-hmm. leaning slightly fundamentalist, certainly heavy political underpinnings to those things, certainly a culture war underpinnings to those things. I had a season of atheism in my teenage years and then came back to Jesus in high school through an inductive study of the book of Galatians. Hmm. The rest is, I guess, history. Interesting. Skylar, how about you? Yeah, I grew up in a kind of similar church. I grew up in South Mississippi, so a traditional Southern Baptistic church heavily influenced by fundamentalism and things like that. Kind of the breach into broader evangelicalism that would have come much later for me. And I think Mike would say the same is more so in college, especially with the advent of social media. When I, when I was in college and even a little bit before that, being involved in various campus ministries was kind of sort of the first insertion into the stream that I guess we could call American evangelicalism and all of the ups and downs and ebbs and flows that come with that. Well, it's interesting for me. I grew up Anabaptist, which would be kind of similar in some ways to the Southern Baptist, but very separatist holiness tradition. Then got discipled by a bunch of Jesus people who came out of the drug culture and were crazy charismatics, and then came to Wheaton College where charismatic was a dirty word at the time. I don't think it is anymore. And then served in a vineyard church, then was at Moody, then at a uh, evangelical charismatic Anglican church. So I feel like I've been in every possible stream that's out there. (laughs) And so I've seen evangelicalism from all of these different angles, and I've seen beautiful things in every single stream. And I've also seen some things that are pretty distressing. And I don't think anybody would argue that right now evangelicalism is fracturing. And you mentioned the Southern Baptists. I mean, that's somewhere where it, it's obviously fracturing on this macro level. We see, we see black pastors, for example, pulling out of the SBC over critical race theory issues. There's also denominations being split over the same thing or LGBT issues or white nationalism. But we're also seeing this fracturing on a micro level within local churches, and I think the latest example is what's happened at Bethlehem Baptist, where the successor to John Piper, Jason Meyer, and two other pastors recently resigned. And if you followed this story, you know there's reasons for these resignations that are very complex. They involve an alleged pattern of spiritual abuse and toxic culture at the church, but there's also some of this fracturing along theological and political lines. And as many of you may know, I mean, if you've been following my reporting on it, you know that Pastor Meyer, when he resigned, lamented that Bethlehem had become what he called neo-fundamentalist. And I had a lot of people reach out to me and say, well, what's neo-fundamentalist anyway? And he referenced your article. And I also have some exclusive communication between pastors at Bethlehem and an elder there which is really eye-opening. But I don't want to get to that yet because I don't think we're going to understand it as fully until we've unpacked some of these different subgroups within evangelicalism. Let's just start where your article starts, and that is with neo-fundamentalist. Who is a neo-fundamentalist evangelical, and what does he believe? A neo-fundamentalist evangelical is somebody who has deep concerns about both political and theological liberalism. So with respect to political liberalism, a neo-fundamentalist has deep concerns about the secular left. With respect to theological liberalism, they have similar concerns to 
you know, from the early 20th century, you know, like Jake Gresham Machen would be definitely a big hero for neo-fundamentalists with that kind of um, upholding of the inerrancy of scripture from that time. But neo-fundamentalists would also be very animated about concerns on the national conversation on race. They would also have concerns about the conversation about gender and have very particular, usually ideas, a particular brand of complementarianism that they're very concerned about kind of upholding. There's a level of um, adjacency and or perhaps co-belligerency um, with this group, with Christian nationalism, although those two things are not necessarily the same thing, Christian nationalism being a kind of syncretism of right-wing nationalism and Christianity. These two groups have a lot in common in terms of some of their goals, but neo-fundamentalists are not necessarily Christian nationalists. And the reasons of how they come to want the same kind of desired ends are more theological than they are political for neo-fundamentalists. One of the main things that the neo-fundamentalists are going to be heavily concerned with is any sort of secular ideology being imported into the church. And that's what influences some of the concern and anger that they might see on topics of gender and race is that any sort of hint that any secular ideology is being brought in is the ultimate affront to the inerrancy and sufficiency of scripture. And therefore, that's why they're heavily concerned with the influence of mass media and social media and the government and the way that other Christians, in their minds, seemingly are adopting these ideologies and then bringing them into the church. Hmm. Although I would argue that concern seems to be somewhat selective because—and maybe this is my Anabaptist background—but nationalism is a secular ideology, is it not? And to, to fuse that with Christianity, to me— is an affront to the gospel. And so I find that very shocking, even though I consider myself politically very conservative. I find that mixing of nationalism and the gospel very concerning. Am, am, am I seeing that correctly? You are seeing that correctly. And I love that you have numbers. It's like one, two, or three. So you, it, it's kind of like the Enneagram, which I'm not going to get into, very controversial as well, but um, but they have numbers. And so this, we have numbers here, whether you're a one, two, or three, but one, two, and three are all still connected some in some way with evangelicalism. Would you describe what two and three are? Yeah, so probably the simplest way to put twos, they're mainstream evangelicals. The technical term for an evangelical is somebody who fits the qualities of the Bevington quadrilateral. Bevington was a sociologist, um, also a theologian. And so that quadrilateral is basically it's just a fancy way to say um, evangelicals hold to these four things. Conversionism, activism, biblicism, and crucicentrism. These are just fancy ways to say that somebody believes in penal substitutionary atonement, the idea that Jesus died for your sins— um, and you can have access to that through repentance and faith in him. Activism, the idea that that faith, that vertical faith between us and God has implications for how we relate to one another. So, you know, loving your neighbor as self. Biblicism, um, which I, I think for, for most twos means at least holding to the infallibility of Scripture and probably also inerrancy in most instances. And then crucicentrism, basically the idea that the cross is central for 
the Christian faith, and the Christian faith hinges on the idea of penal substitutionary atonement. In addition to that, this group is primarily motivated on the idea of fulfilling the Great Commission. With respect to ones, in contrast to them, neo-fundamentalist evangelicals, their posture towards culture and society, where their primary strategy and tactic is more culture war, mm-hmm. twos, their primary strategy and tactic is the Great Commission or Great Commission Christians. Okay, you, sometimes you hear that kind of language, kind of language that um, uh, J.D. Greer uh, in Summit Church uses, and he he would utilize it. He'd, he'd say a lot when he was um, talking about the SBC as being Great Commission Baptists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, twos would probably still vote very similar to ones, but they do not necessarily see the culture war as their primary tool that they're trying to use in their relationship to the world. However, it's still something that they want to be engaged with, particularly on issues, say, pro-life. Pro-life for twos primarily looks like activism regarding abortion. You know, twos would probably be people who would have been very uncomfortable with the rhetoric of Trump and other folks in that vein, but they probably still would have voted for him just because of the idea that that the Supreme Court would be very important. They're not beholden to Christian nationalism or adjacent to them like the way that ones are. Mm-hmm. However, if you asked it to, which is more dangerous, the secular left or the secular right, they would definitely say the secular left. They might have a category for the secular right, but they certainly would probably not identify that as being as dangerous as the secular left. However, a two would probably have January 6th would have sat uncomfortable with them, but probably not in a way that it sits more uncomfortably with threes and fours. Hmm. And it is so interesting to me as I engage in social media, a wolf is often more dangerous if he's dressed like a sheep. And so uh, this right that is very anti-Christian is very concerning to me because it comes disguised. Um, but that doesn't mean I don't think the the far left is a, is a real problem, and it's dangerous. I do. But if you engage and, and point out things about the secular right, you're automatically dubbed as way on the secular left, which which stuns me, um, the way that we do that and the way that, that we have in these different groups seen each other and not been really listening to each other. There's so much to discuss about each one of these camps, but describe, if you would, the group number three, which you've dubbed neo-evangelical. Skylar? When we refer to the neo-evangelicals here, and mostly we use the numerical identifiers, we're referring to something that's maybe akin to what other people would describe as global evangelicals. They're doctrinally evangelical in the sense that they still hold to the traditional Christian beliefs as they're exemplified, maybe most basically in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and following that tradition. But what kind of separates them from the twos, especially, and even the fours that come after them, is that they're still willing to use the term evangelical to describe themselves. And though they hold these conservative beliefs, there's significant philosophy of ministry uh, differences between the two groups that are before and after them. So whereas twos are maybe more so see an attack on the left side, the threes are going to be more attuned to the threat that is possibly coming from the right. And so they'll be concerned with conservative Christianity's acceptance of Trump. They're more willing to engage on topics of race and sexuality. But again, they haven't totally abandoned that evangelical identification. And so they're more likely to serve in churches with a broader spectrum of other numbers because of their kind of seeing 
the threat from both sides. Outside the church, they're largely going to feel homeless. Uh, Mike and I were talking just the other day that in a lot of times it can feel for threes that they're the ones that are being talked over. They're being shouted over by the numbers that are on the polls, and twos can likely feel this as well. Um, depending on the person who might be a three, they'll either see a, a larger threat also coming from the West, and they're concerned with that, especially as it relates to uh, religious freedom and possible threats from the West in terms of religious freedom. Hmm. So if I were to put this in terms of Trump, a neo-fundamentalist evangelical probably enthusiastically voted for Trump. A mainstream evangelical probably plugged their nose and voted for Trump. And a neo-evangelical voted independent or Democrat. Would that be close? Couching it in terms of Trump is helpful in some ways. And and it's key to remember that as we're talking about, we're talking about a fracturing within the church, not excluding people from the church, and at least not until you know the fives and sixes have self-selected themselves out. But it's, again, within ones, we're, we're saying they're, they're Christians, they're within the church. But yeah, I would say that that's probably right. With threes, possibly even there being some that are really plugging their nose and, and, and possibly voting for Trump. But again, the, the homelessness that defines the threes would likely mean many of them are voting independent or leaning towards voting Democratic or and will possibly be feeling like they're being pushed more towards that with every succeeding election. Hmm. And and you gentlemen, do you, do you divulge where you're at on this uh, on this spectrum? I do. I'm a three. You're three. Yeah, I'm pretty comfortable uh, stating that I'm within the three range there. Uh, depending on various issues, certain specific things may make me feel more two-ish. Some specific issues may make me four, and especially of moments of crisis that we see pop up. Uh, for instance, you know, instances like January sixth, twenty twenty-one, can really make you feel more willingness to critique evangelicalism and maybe even pushing more towards the four at times. So it's it's hard to always say. And and we mentioned in the article that they're not just, you know, one, two, there's all kinds of gradients between the numbers that someone can be a 3.5 or a 2.8. And of course it's non-scientific, but uh, because of that, I, I would say I'm more comfortable in the three mm -hmm. range. One of the reasons why I'm a three is because if you look at Jesus's ministry, you can kind of see these various groups um, of in the groups that Jesus is interacting with. So for example, like Pharisees would be folks that would probably more trend on the one end of the spectrum. And the Sadducees would be more on the four, four plus kind of end of that um, continuum where the ones are primarily looking to just show me the rules and I'll make sure that I follow those to the letter. And then you had, you know, the Sadducees, which kind of trend towards theological liberalism in terms of like, say, four, you know, four and a half and, you know, and up. You know, Jesus was critical of both of these forms of establishment. And so I think that's kind of where, why I land kind of as a three, you know, Jesus was critical of both of these different institutions. And he was looking to disrupt, you know, both of them in a way that was right doctrine, right affect and right actions. And so that's why I'm a three. Well, I know as I've looked at myself within these categories, I have a really tough time even pinning myself down because I would say mainstream evangelical is who I've been my entire life. The centrality of the gospel has always been incredibly important to me. And the activism has mainly taken non-political forms, though at times has taken political forms when, when appropriate. I've been very involved in the pro-life movement, for example. But I will say following 2016, 
and seeing so many friends go into the number one camp, the neo-fundamentalists, and become very white nationalist, I, that has been shocking to me, absolutely shocking. But at the same time, do I still have conservative convictions? Yes. Am I doctrinally conservative? Yes. Do I have more affinity for the left than I did before? No, not really. Um, I just see that the right's acting just like the left. And so I, I don't really understand how Christians can be so staunch about only seeing one side. And so before 2016, too, I had a, a radio program called Up for Debate, and we debate both sides and try to get people in to, to actually listen to each other and see both sides. And I think there's a need for that. But like I said, I do have some exclusive communication uh, from Bethlehem Baptist, which I think is illustrative of what we're talking about. It's like watching it happen on a microscopic scale, so to speak, at a local church. And again, there's more to it, much more to it. In fact, some would say the main factor of what happened at Bethlehem Baptist with three pastors resigning, about 10% of the membership resigning as well. The church is in upheaval, and a lot would say that's because of spiritual abuse happening there and a toxic culture. And I'm just going to shelve that for now, even though I think it has a lot of explanatory power, and I've explored that in articles and actually my last podcast. But this whole issue, again, of the different subgroups, I think is a part of what's happening at Bethlehem as well, and it's happening, again, across evangelicalism. I have an email that was sent from Tom Lutz, who's an elder at Bethlehem Baptist, and it's addressed to two of Bethlehem's pastors who have since resigned. One is Ming Jin Tong, and the other is Brian Pickering, and the email is then copied to Jason Meyer, who again was John Piper's successor, who recently resigned. So I'm going to read a portion of Lutz's email, and then I really would like, Michael and Skyler, your response to it. And just for some context, Lutz wrote his email on Monday, March 22nd, 2021. That's just days after the Spa killings in Atlanta. And Lutz is responding to a congregational prayer that Brian Pickering prayed in Sunday services the day before, as well as a sermon that Ming Jing Tong preached on that Sunday. Apparently, both Pickering and Tong uh, talked about the victims in the Spa shooting being of Asian descent and decried the sin of racism. I actually have a written copy of Pickering's prayer, and Tong's sermon is still available online. So if you want to read the full prayer, uh, you can do that. I'll post a link as well at my website, julieroy, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com, uh, to uh, Tong's sermon. So you, you can get both of those, the document and, and link to the audio there. But here's a little bit of what Tom Lutz writes, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, he writes... Brothers, I am wrestling with this question. Why do some of you feel the need to frame the story of the Atlanta area massage parlor killings in the light of race slash ethnicity? The recent killings in and around Atlanta are terrible. Image bearers of the Almighty God were killed by a man tormented by a sex addiction. But let us please understand that this was not focused on people of Asian heritage, but on people working at massage parlors with a known reputation for providing sexual services. The world is casting this in the light of race or ethnicity, but it is not what we should do. Here are some facts and figures that are important to know. One, the killer, Robert Aaron Long, was and is a sex addict. The three massage parlors were particularly known for providing sexual services. 
The three massage parlors, along with many others across this country, were listed in the website specifically designed to promote this illegal activity. And then he goes on to name several other things. And then he states, media sources like Forbes, The Federalist, USA Today, and others have consistently pointed out these facts and made them available. And yet the world quickly frames this up as violence against Asian Americans. It was violence against sex workers in an industry largely owned and populated by Asian Americans. We look like the world when we view this first as a crime perpetrated with racial motives when it clearly was not. And then he says, uh, skipping through some of this, the story in Atlanta should first serve as a reminder to all of us of the dangers of sin, particularly sexual sin, and that forgiveness of that sin and the providing of a means of escaping that temptation was purchased for us by Jesus Christ. I also have the response that Brian Pickering gave to Tom Lutz, and I'll read portions of that. But first, I would just like your response to what you just heard Tom Lutz express. What does that sound like to you when we're thinking of these different subgroups within evangelicalism? Michael? I think this response maybe is not well trauma-informed, and particularly racial trauma. So it's probably a more complicated conversation than what the elder who was struggling with the pastoral prayer um, maybe realized. As it pertains to the six-way fracturing, which is probably more where you're getting at, it seems to me that the, probably the person who's writing this is somewhere in the 1.5 range, you know, plus or minus a few. And he's probably writing to somebody who's a three, a new evangelical. And so there's probably a level of miscommunication. Hmm. Skylar, do you have anything to add? you think that's coming from like a 1.3, which would be sort of leaning more towards neo-fundamentalist? Yeah, I don't want to add too much more to what Mike said. I think especially what he was mentioning of the trauma gap there is really informing. Uh, as a pastor, I remember that Sunday and just the response and the, the feelings of our Asian American brothers and sisters, regardless of whatever the motivation of the crime was, just the, the plain optics of it are, especially with someone with a history of racial trauma, uh, is certainly going to impact in that way. As it relates to the six-fold fracturing, what you're seeing unstated in that email that is abundantly clear when you think in terms of six-way fracturing is a deep concern from this elder that these other two pastors have brought worldly categories and notably intersectionality. And the fact that, okay, these are not just women. Okay, they're Asian women. They're not just Asian women. They're, they work in this line of work. And so this elder is concerned that they are importing, even though he's unstated and maybe wouldn't even know the term intersectionality, he's, in, he's concerned that they're importing this worldly ideology. And so as we talk about, if he's a, a 1.5 or 1.3 and, uh, and, he's, and he's writing to these men who would possibly classify themselves as more threes, this is one of the key fault lines that we'll see, and you'll see as a pattern in churches as these lead, type of leaders that are ones and threes interact with one another, is that they're going to be concerned any time that there's a critique of what they perceive as conservative evangelicalism or, or the church in general from a three, that they're importing worldly categories. And so though that's unstated, that seems to be clearly what he's saying, and that would seem to to insinuate that this would he would probably be somewhere in the one range. I also have the response by Brian Pickering to this email, and I think it's really interesting as well. So let me just read some some sections of that, and then I'd like your response to it as well. He writes, Hi, Tom. Uh, thank you for 
clearly articulating your perspective. It is so very important, as you did in your email, to acknowledge that the victims who lost their lives in Atlanta are image bearers of Almighty God. And then he names them. And he says, I do not think there is an either or choice to be made between condemning the sin of racism and sexism on the one hand and sexual immorality on the other. But the command to weep with those who weep, compassionate wisdom, does help me prioritize what I say and when I say it. One of the particular aims I had in my pastoral prayer on Sunday was that our Asian American and Asian immigrant brothers and sisters in our church and beyond would know, one, that the Lord sees them and that we as a body see their continued pain and deep grief and fear. And then he quotes Joash Thomas, an Asian American ministry leader at the International Justice Mission in Atlanta, and he writes, make no mistake, many of your Asian American neighbors are in deep grief, fear, and mourning right now, and not just because of the killings in Atlanta. Asian American hate crimes have spiked 150 percent in 2020 because of COVID-related fears, even as the number of overall hate crimes fell. And those are just the reported hate crimes. Then he goes on to mention how that community is feeling. Brian ends the email with, I would also like to note that many of my Asian brothers and sisters who feel both crushed and energized to speak in this particular moment are not doing so in a worldly way. They're not deluded into thinking that the world or the flesh or the devil has a solution that Jesus himself does not. It is precisely because they are united with our Lord Jesus Christ by grace through faith that they are speaking up about their great pain and the deep disappointment from not hearing their white brothers and sisters see and acknowledge their experiences. It's a longer letter than that, and I can post that letter on my website as well. But he's making the point that, again, it's not an either-or. These are both gospel concerns, yet it seems like ones and threes, as you can call them, seem to prioritize or, or not see some of these other concerns. Are people in the one group, for example, just failing to see and understand people in three, and maybe it's happening vice versa as well. I don't know. The three, again, as you can see here, is trying to maintain the bond of peace between these two groups of ones and threes and everything and stuff. So I think we're certainly seeing they're coming at it with totally different worldviews as they're seeing the exact same set of circumstances play out on a global scale. And that's why when we opened the article, we mentioned some of these major things that have happened in American culture over the last, really over the last uh, six years or so. And the whole point of opening with these things is because what we're saying is everyone on the spectrum sees these few events completely differently because they're approaching it with a different uh, worldview. Hmm. About a month after this email exchange between Tom Lutz and Pickering, there's also, I have an email from Ming Jin Tung. I didn't read that just because I don't have his permission to do so. But they were accused in an elder meeting of subordinating the gospel. And it sounds like Tom Lutz was key in that accusation. And in fact, I have a written explanation by Lutz of those accusations, and I can post that to my website as well. This needs context, too. I mean, all of these things need context. Uh, The elder meeting came after Brian Pickering had accused Andy Nacelli, who's another elder and professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary, of, quote, displaying a pattern of controlling an egregious sin against God and his people. And Pickering, Tong, and Meyer all voted to investigate Nacelli, while most of the rest of the elder board voted to dismiss the allegations against Nacelli. So that provides a context as well. And Jason Meyer did say in his letter that 
this elder meeting where he was accused of subordinating the gospel felt like a tribunal and felt like retribution for, again, voting for an investigation, which never happened. They never did an investigation into these things. So they may have been retribution, but they also, I think, betray this fundamental difference. And so this is what Lutz writes in his explanation. He says, uh, my intent when I said the words to the effect the gospel has been subordinated at Bethlehem's downtown campus, that the gospel in my mind, the whole counsel of God is revealed in Scripture, both the old and new covenant as it points to Christ and his accomplishment, does not have the place of primacy, and that the gospel is being treated as of lesser importance than something else. Here are some observations and experiences that he notes. One, that suffering, hardship, partiality, abuse, and the grip of sin on this world is repeatedly acknowledged and agonized over to a degree equal to or greater than the greatness of God and his love, mercy, and justice towards us demonstrated in the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. He has a number of observations there, but then he also gives examples, and one is the tone and tenor and conclusion of Jason Meyer's sermon relating to the death of George Floyd. Uh, It's my understanding, and he mentions a closing statement where he said, if you don't agree that this is bad, and I don't know the exact quote, but he basically said, then you're free to leave kind of thing. Pastoral prayers rather than a prayer of praise. They instead focused on a dimension of the recent killings in Brooklyn Park and then Atlanta. He says a number of different things here, saying our church has become something other than what it used to be, and I don't think the gospel is spoken of enough. Boy, this seems like something that's being played out all over the country. I think we heard it in the, in the latest SBC annual conference as well. Very curious in your thoughts when you hear that. One of the things that you can have between one, two, three, or four is you can have doctrinal alignment. You know, you can have complete agreement, you know, on penal substitutionary atonement, the sovereignty of God. Where the rubber meets the road, though, is it's not just gospel doctrine, but it's what kind of gospel culture are you Mm. looking to inculcate in your church? There's a wide variety of perspectives in terms of what do you see the mission of the church to the world being? Is the mission of the church to the world truly just, you know, penal substitutionary atonement and loving your neighbor as yourself, primarily just not doing harm? Or are there things that are, you know, more significant than that? What I hear in some of these things is um, from in terms of the critiques that are probably more coming from the neo-fundamentalist elders um, at this particular church is kind of what Dr. Martin Luther King referred to as the white moderate in his seminal essay, Letter from Birmingham Jail. He critiqued those who would question the timing, tactics, or the extent to which Dr. King and those who were fighting for civil rights at that time were doing those things more than he critiqued, say, the Ku Klux Klan or the White Citizens Counselor. So he was more frustrated at the silence of his theological friends than he was the sins of commission of those who were not Christians and who were fighting against his freedom. That's where I think sins of omission kind of come into play. I never said the N-word or I've never had the sin of partiality, but maybe you've been in situations where you should have stood up for somebody in a a situation where they weren't being treated fairly, 
and your failure to act was morally problematic. And so these are just some of the things, some of the categories I'd like to introduce in, in this particular um, interaction. I know we've spent a lot of time on categories one through five, and that's because that's where so much of my reporting and writing takes place. I, I think four through six, those subcategories, which are post-evangelical, de-churched, but with some Jesus, as you put it, and de-churched and de-converted, those three, unfortunately, I think are the results of a lot of this fracturing and polarizing within evangelicalism. If you would, Skylar, can you just kind of go over, we don't have a lot of time, but just the post-evangelical de-churched and de-churched and de-converted, who those people are and maybe how we can respond to them. The way that Mike and I have begun talking about de-churched is essentially there's two types of de-churched. There's those who are casually de-churched, which probably makes up a large majority of de-churched people. And those are people that have, because of a different change in life circumstance, maybe suffering, uh, especially something like moving, they just never really return to church. But we also speak of, and this is what you're kind of getting at here, Julie, is the casualty de-churched. And so the casualty de-church are people that are not, they did not self-select themselves out in, in many ways, but were pushed out. Mm. And that's going to be especially in the way that the church is addressing uh, sexuality questions, racial questions, and, and especially, like you said, maybe they were harmed personally by abuse or the way that abuse was responded to by a church they were in or in a situation that happened to themselves. And so the de-church, especially in these fives and sixes, now the fives are someone that if they're a casualty, they've been pushed out of the church for various reasons. They still believe in Jesus, but they no longer feel like they belong. Mm. Or they still believe in Jesus, but their their ethical lives do not necessarily match what they say they believe. The six de-churched and deconverted would be those who no longer feel like they belong. They no longer uh, ethically would live in, uh, with Christian ethics. But that's mostly stemming from the fact that they no longer believe in Jesus as the only way. And those can be both casually and casualty. And so if you're in a church that's one and the way that they're addressing cultural issues and the way that if you're in a church that's twos and threes or whatever the combination may be, the way that these bigger cultural moments are addressed from the pulpit are significantly affecting what we're seeing in de-churching in America, uh, which is a growing trend, uh, especially like you mentioned, among young people. And one of the primary things that they're citing whenever they're sending to church, if they're, especially if they're casualty, is that they no longer found, they found the church to either be backwards or outdated and the teachings to no longer be applicable. And that can be traced back to the fact that these certain issues are not being addressed in a way that they feel actually wrestles with the question and what they're seeing in the broader world. And this to me is the, the great travesty of all of this, is that in name of the gospel, supposedly, we're alienating large swaths of people from the gospel. I think all of these groups need to really think about how do we really communicate Christ to this generation and to be open to new ways to doing that. I mean, my prayer is that there would be some humility on everyone's part to be able to maybe have some reconciliation. I don't know if that's possible. We seem so polarized. I know with God, all things are possible. Michael, do you have any belief or hope that that can happen? Or do you think this is kind of the beginning of, and I, I really do wonder if 25 years from now, we're even going to have evangelicalism, or we will have moved so far apart that we're completely different movements. 
by that time. What do you think? The only thing I would add to what Skylar had to say about the de-church phenomenon is the, the size and the scope of this, of this phenomenon is massive. We're currently witnessing the largest religious shift in American history, okay? This religious shift is larger than the First Great Awakening or the Second Great Awakening or the rechurching that occurred after the Civil War. And so I think we have further to go down on the de-churching end of things before there's change. Now, my hope, um, and this is a kind of a classic three hope, would be for three things, repentance, reform, and renewal. Mm-hmm. Um, repentance would be for anything that, you know, that we're doing, either individually in our churches, um, individual churches, all the way to the denominational um, level and all the way up to the movement level of anything that needs to be repented of. Reform would be things that need to be put into place to prevent the kinds of things that we had, that we just had to repent for. And renewal being maybe a more healthy word for revival, but I, without renewal will not happen without, you know, repentance and reform. And I'm not sure, Julie, I see a critical mass yet reached of people who are concerned with repentance, reform, and renewal. I think that that, that population is growing. I think that there are people who want to be consistent doctrinally, ethically, and culturally. Um, I'm encouraged by that. But I don't think that there's a critical mass. I think most evangelicals are twos. And twos, I think, are a little bit more concerned with just kind of maintaining the status quo. They might be willing to hear that there are things um, that are problems, but I'm not sure that they are quite see those problems as being serious enough to seek the repentance and reform required to see that those problems are not further promulgated in the future. So I think in the short run, we have more to go down um, before we can see repentance, reform, and renewal. However, I am encouraged by the growth of those, you know, who are very serious about their faith and who are willing to maybe eschew the safety of, of a particular tribe and be willing to be an equal opportunity offender um, across multiple axes, cultural, political, theological. So I don't know. Um, I do have hope for the future, but I think um, in the interim, we're going to be more focused on our intramural squabbles than with the idea that we're kind of getting killed in the broader culture in our country. We're going to continue to be distracted from the things that that really require repentance and reform. Hmm. Well, so much of what you just said resonates with me. I know when I publish, like I do regularly, about the abuse and corruption within the church, I always get the question from some people, like, how is what you're doing restoring the church? And how is airing our dirty laundry helping? And it's, we cannot get to reform without repentance. Mm -hmm. And admitting our sin is the first step. And I do believe that sunlight is the best disinfectant. But you're right, we're not at a critical mass yet. It seems to me that there's way more energy in protecting, which, you know, we saw at Bethlehem, but we see, I see it at every church I report on, um, every organization. There's so much momentum protecting the image of the church or the institution, very little in really wanting to own and admit sin and repent of it and reform. 
Skylar, any last words you have? As I look at the fracturing and I consider the future, I look at it kind of under two ways. There's the big, uh, there's the big scale, big evangelicalism, and then there's also the more local lived expression that we see within our churches. And so I think that those two fracturing, while while the one impacts the other and it goes both ways, that it'll look different in both settings. And so I will see, as Tim Keller mentioned in a, a breakout session that he did uh, with my Graham and I's team at As in Heaven, he spoke of a sorting that he that we're seeing happen that is similar to what happened in the 1940s when Carl F. H. Henry, in tandem also with Jay Gresham Macon, is looking and seeing threats from both the left and the right and trying to navigate a center course between the two. And that's ultimately what formed what we know as now as evangelicalism. And so I don't think we have to be afraid of this sorting. I think from an institutional level, you'll either see organizations say, let's cut it, let's lop off the extreme of whichever one makes us most uncomfortable. Or if you're in a parachurch organization or a publisher and you're largely, your support base is largely ones, but then your staff is largely twos and threes and the people you're reaching are largely threes and fours and fives and sixes, you're going to continue to see tension within larger organizations. And on churches, you may see less distance between the numbers, but still see that discomfort. And so I think as we move into the future and we see these two categories, and they're going to be impacting one another. The main hope that I think we can move forward in is that the bond of unity that unites the church is not ultimately our political affiliation. It's not ultimately the way we read the current. The, it's not ultimately the winds of culture. It's ultimately the bond of the spirit. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that we can have confidence as pastors, as church members, as Christians in America, that the Lord is preparing us and the Lord is at work, even through truth telling the Lord is at work through, even in the fracturing, even in the sorting that he's preparing the church for fruitful mission in this age. And so I don't think we have to despair when we see fracturing, but I think we can also say, what is it that the Lord is trying to work out here so that his gospel would go forth unto the nations and that he would be ultimately glorified? Hmm. So good. Well, thank you, Skylar and Michael, so much for taking this time. It's been just such an eye-opening and just enlightening time. So I appreciate what you wrote. I appreciate this discussion. And I just pray for God's grace on your continued ministry in your churches and larger community through your podcast and your writing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Julie. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Julie. And thanks so much for listening to The Roy's Report, a podcast dedicated to reporting the truth and restoring the church. I'm Julie Roy's. If you'd like to connect with me online or see some of the documents referenced today, just go to julieroy's, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com. That's julieroy's.com. Also, just a quick reminder to subscribe to The Roy's Report on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. That way you'll never miss an episode. And while you're at it, I'd really appreciate it if you help us spread the word about the podcast by leaving a review. And then please share the podcast on social media so more people can hear about this great content. Again, thanks so much for joining me today. Hope you have a great day and God bless.